Ben Sass is the junior senator from Nebraska. He somewhat prolific on social media, goes through spurts. Sometimes his wife takes his phone away from him for his good. He'll admit that. Ben holds a PhD in history from Yale, has been the president of a Christian college, has served as an elder and an officer in um, various churches over his lifetime. Ben's a historian. I say all of that to say this. I was listening to a talk he gave recently at uh, the Trinity Forum in Washington, D.C. He, along with Russell Moore, were giving a talk um, on the interconnectedness of society and how we oftentimes are being separated out into tribes. One of the things that Ben often says as a historian is that normally historians are the party poopers. Historians are the ones that show up at a party when everyone thinks uh, and begins talking about um, that there's been no other time in the history of the world like this time. Historians are the ones that say, actually, that's not true. The reason you think that is because you're a narcissist. He said, but in this particular time and age in which we live, there is probably, we are probably right now living through one of those major shifts in the way that relationships, global economics, um, the interconnectedness of people in the way that works He said, historically, there's not been many, but we may actually be living through one of those right now. There's another uh, another academic, Shelley Turkle. Shelley is a professor of social sciences and technology at MIT. Shelley has spent her um, research career mainly looking at the intersection of technology and human relationships. In a TED talk that she gave, she described our present condition in our present world as we are alone together. Never have we been more connected. Never have we been more alone. There's a lot of research going in right now to... um, the ethics of technology. Not could we, but should we? Because of the ways that it is impacting our world and our relationships, where we are able to go into our respective tribes, we are able to do us versus them. Paul was very concerned as he wrote Philippians about the potential of fracture and tribalism infiltrating the church. Philippians doesn't read, though, like the rest of Paul's letters. No, in fact, Philippians reads um, as this overflowing love letter, it would seem, to these precious saints there in Philippi. 
Here in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, Paul is um, not first going to confront what's wrong with the church. He's going to overflow with thanksgiving for what's going on in his own heart for the church. Now, here's where I need you to listen. We must not see Paul's love that he overflows with for the Philippian Christians as exceptional as in the exception, not the rule. To see Paul's love as, uh, as he is manifesting it here for the, for the Christians in Philippi as exceptional, as in it is just Paul, he's special, is to miss the heart of God here. Paul will say other challenging things, but here, We need to hear what God has done in Paul as he is commending uh, to them the common mission, the common purpose, the commonality they have around their partnership in the gospel. He is interested uh, in more than just reminding them about common tasks they have. He is interested in reminding them of their common and shared identity. They are bound up in, united with Christ Jesus. To focus continually there, that they, that we are in Christ, that Christ is at work in us, and that we are co-laborers with Jesus, can do phenomenal things. There was a story of Sailors getting ready to go to battle in World War II around the uh, the siege at Normandy. The chaplain on the uh, naval vessel noted that on the way over, there was a focus, there was a camaraderie, there was a um, there was a sense of unity. On the way back, everything seemed to change. One of the officers asked the chaplain what was going on. He said, before, we had no choice. Everyone had to think about the common shared identity that we had. Once the mission was done, everyone was able to resort back to their natural inclinations. Dear friends, are you ready to hear God speak? Are you ready to respond? Let's stand as we turn together to Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace 
both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you in these moments speak? Would you still our minds and quiet our hearts so that we may hear Jesus and him only? Forgive the one who preaches his sins for they are many. Our desire is that you would shoot a straight shot with a crooked arrow such as me. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So do you know what Paul is experiencing in jail? He's experiencing um, having his very freedom, his very identity robbed from him as he has a Roman guard chained to him. But instead of shutting down, instead of closing in on himself, look. Look at the words that are flowing from his pen from his heart to this church, he is experiencing the antidote of self-centeredness. Paul's thankful heart shows us two things, and that is as we trust Jesus, not just for his work on the cross in the past to pay for our sins, but in our present to sustain us in himself, we are given gifts through his Spirit, Gifts that stretch our hearts to love others and a joy that places suffering that we experience in its proper context. All of which enables us to trust that God is making us more and more like his son through both our our things that would cause us to celebrate and the things that cause us to groan and lament. And here's the point. Because Paul himself has experienced these things, he is therefore confident that all who are in Christ Jesus will experience this type of heart-stretching, world-changing growth. If God can take the one who stood at the execution of God's people and change in him to give him a heart that now overflows with joy and yearning and longing for God's people. Paul says, I'm confident that God can do this in anybody. Those that are in Philippi, us as well. The expression of thankfulness that we're looking at this morning, this expression of thankfulness, this expression of joy, this expression of yearning in Paul's prayers point to the fruit that faith has formed in him. 
the thankfulness that Paul, that Paul is overflowing with, the joy that Paul is overflowing with are all indicators that point to the fruit that faith has formed inside Paul. Here's the first thing that I want you to see in the text this morning. The first thing that I want you to see is the breadth. How wide is this love that Christ has formed in the apostle Paul for these people? Look at verses three through four. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all. Look at all the alls that are there. Look at all the alls that are there. In all my remembrance of you all, always in every prayer. Now, here's the thing. Are these just, are these just pleasantries? Is this just Paul being super kind and friendly? I don't think it is. As, we're, as we'll soon see later in this letter, it's anything, it's anything but. It's the, it's the evidence of the regenerating, the redeeming, the resurrecting love of God in Christ Jesus, ruling and reigning in Paul's heart that can cause him to love like this. As I alluded to a moment ago, you remember that Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. If anyone had any right to claim any bit of heritage, it was Paul. And yet, now because of the work that God has done in him, he now claims this deep and abiding love for a Gentile businesswoman from Asia, a hardened Roman jailer, people from other pagan pasts. And even as we'll see in a couple weeks, he even has love and compassion for those that are preaching the gospel out of a spirit of competition rather than camaraderie. When Paul says that the thoughts of these people bring him great happiness, great joy, this is not, this is not Paul issuing platitudes. This is not Paul just trying to make them feel nice. This is a heart that is overflowing with the love of God. Because he's been changed into a son, redeemed by the king. And he is expressing the love that has conquered his heart, is now flowing and overflowing from his heart. And he says that he's making these prayers with joy. Now joy is going to be a thing that we see throughout this letter. And as I've mentioned before, um, in other sermons and at other times and other occasions, joy as a fundamental part of the Christian life can sometimes get confused with happiness, okay? Happiness is an emotion, right? Happy, sad, angry, frustrated. Those are all emotions. Emotions are, are relatively neutral. They just give you a window into kind of your deep desires, what's, what's orienting your world, what is shaping your world, right? Emotions are how you process your world. That's why people can experience different emotions over the same event. What does joy mean? Here's one definition that I thought was helpful. It's, it's not um, super pithy and short, but I think it's still helpful. Joy is an understanding of existence that encompasses both 
elation and depression that can accept with submission events which bring delight or dismay because joy allows one to see beyond any particular event to the sovereign Lord who stands above all events and ultimately has control over them. Now, I want you to know several things. First of all, to say that you have joy does not mean that you're not experiencing the accompanying emotions that may go with a particular event, okay? It is not burying your head in the sand when things are going bad and with rose-colored glasses to pretend things are good. That is not what this definition says. Joy is a disposition that allows you to see past the events to the God who is in control of all of these events. It's not a quiet acceptance of God's will. It's not a what will be will be, que sera, sera. It's an understanding of the fullness of life in God that can traverse both through triumph and tragedy, delight or dismay. It is not either joy or lament. It can be both. In fact, that's the point, isn't it? Joy, seeing beyond events to see a sovereign Lord, can still take the language of lament or sadness or fear or anger. It can boast in elation. It can boast in laughter. Joy does not call us to masquerade. Joy can rightly be held in tension with other deeply held emotions and feelings. Look, after all, at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. What does it say? Hebrews 12, 2 tells that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus went to the cross. Joy can rightly coexist with seemingly contradictory feelings. But that's more on that later. Paul says here in verse 4, Always in every prayer, while a Roman guard is chained to my arm, making my prayer with joy, because he sees what God is doing. He sees beyond his circumstances to see what God is doing. Sure, he wasn't happy to have a roommate chained to him. But nevertheless, as he'll say later, whether in plenty or in want, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So that's the breath, the you alls, right? There's a second aspect that we see uh, where we see fruit that is the, uh, the evidence of faith being formed in Paul, right? This outcropping of what God has done in the heart of Paul. And that is the intensity, the intensity of the love that he is feeling for these people, the intensity of this Christ-like love. Look at me at verses 7 through 8. So in 7 through 8, I hold you in my heart, for you are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in defense of the gospel. So to say that Paul um, loves these people, love is a flat word. It's at least been flattened uh, in our uh, day and age. I love, uh, I love my wife. Um, I love my children. I love chicken fried rice. Not the same type of love. 
Do I love fried rice and my children in the same qualitative way? It depends on the day. Don't judge me. (laughs) Paul says he feels this way about you all holding them in his heart. And then in verse 8, Paul invokes the very witness of God himself to attest to the fact that the quality of the love he feels for these people was the affection of Christ Jesus. So, um, I don't think that many of you brought your King James with you this morning. I think there's, uh, there's, there's some um, linguistic issues inside the King James, albeit a beautiful piece of literature. However, there is one place where I think the King James actually gets us closer to um, what that word affection means. They've kind of smoothed it out in English. But if you read your old King James, your old authorized version, it will say, I, um, I feel for you, let's see in verse, um, how I yearn for you with all of the bowels of Christ Jesus. That's not a common English expression anymore. <laughs> At least not in polite company. It's a deep affection felt all the way down to the gut. I didn't put this story in my notes because I couldn't commit to writing it. So I'm going to try and say it without, you know, falling apart. So my grandfather, not a very emotive guy, um, very deeply affectionate and caring, but not very emotive, right? Um, His typical way of um, saying goodbye to me was something to the effect of this, keep your nose clean. When he was in the last stages of cancer, and my sister and I went to go see them. As I was getting ready to leave, I knew that there was a possibility that this would be the last time I'd see him. And I said, I love you, Grandpa. And he looked at me and he said, I love you too, David. And for me, I knew that he knew this is probably it. No, I, no, keep your nose clean. No, keep your chin up. I love you. Paul's saying here, the depth of the affection that he feels for these people is the type of affection that one could only uh, approximate with the love that put Jesus and held Jesus to the cross. It's the tender look that we hear that Jesus gave to the people. Matthew records for us this same word, or it's a version of this word, in Matthew's Gospel in Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus saw a people harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, and he felt compassion for them. He felt it deep within his bowels. He felt it deep within his gut. He felt compassion for them. 
the compassion that spurred Jesus from deep within to love and to teach and to tell and to declare that there was good news because he himself was here and would set right what sin had set wrong, that he would make way for God's people to once again be united to the heart of God himself, that he would make that way by being the cast away one so that God's people, God's treasure would be the brought near ones. This compassion that was rooted in the joy that was set before Christ to be the reconciliation of heaven to earth. This is the affection. This is the compassion. This is the depths of love that Paul feels for the Philippians. When the affection Jesus grips, when the affection of Jesus grips our hearts, we not only feel a sense of loss when we're separated from the people of God, but we feel an intense sense of longing for their well-being, for their development, for their growth, for their nurturing. Now, this should, um, this should, again, grab your ears just a little bit because this is, not, um, this is not our normal way of being, is it? I mean, we, we do okay for us to be uh, naturally disposed towards ourselves in this way, right? We're even okay with being de- uh, disposed towards maybe family members or children or people in our inner circle, uh, that we really uh, that we really love, but we're not um, we're not predisposed to loving people outside of our circles in this way. Let me see if I can give you an illustration. I did a lot of research on this, um, so hear me out. Um, some of you have been uh, extremely ill before. Um, and some of you have experienced what is known in the medical community uh, as man flu. I said I did a lot of research. Don't mock me. Man flu is terrible. It's a horrible ailment that affects at some point 10 out of 10 men. I don't understand why you're laughing. You are so insensitive. It generally presents with a slight fever, possibly some congestion, a bit of fatigue, and a sharp sense that the world, as it is presently known, is collapsing and ending. Uh, those suffering from or who have suffered from man flu know that it takes all of your energy just to take care of your own ailing body and that requests of your spouse or children to do basic things like get over it or you're not too sick to stay home from work or you realize that mom never gets a day off when she's sick is just too much for your tender ears. Okay, so any affliction, whether it's uh, um, serious or silly, and sorry guys, man flu is silly. Even though 99.6 fever feels like death, it's not. Illness reveals that we are, when afflicted, a people that have a hard time thinking about anything other than ourselves. 
But here, look at this. Paul is afflicted by having a guard chained to his body. He has no privacy, no rights, and yet his thoughts. Look at the beginning of verse 7, right? I hold you in my heart. I hold you in my heart. It's right for me to think this way. It's right for me to feel this way. Feels disposed towards these people, his beloved church, with deep affection. How does that happen? That's the last thing we need to see. If love formed in us can be this wide and this intense, we better talk about what its source is. Because Paul is not the exception. Here's the last indicator of the fruit that faith has formed in Paul and its love source. Look at verse 5. Saying, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So the Greek word for partnership there is the Greek word koinonia. This is where we get the word fellowship or that type of thing. One of the things we have to dispel is the idea that, um, um, that fellowship for us um, we've, we've really stripped it of its meaning. Because see, when you're in jail, like Paul was, you are completely dependent on everyone else to supply your meals, to supply, your, um, to supply all the things that you would need. There was no, nothing was supplied for you. Um, but what Paul has in mind here, I think, is deeper than just um, a financial partnership. They were partners together in the gospel. Um, that is in God's grace. The partnership in the gospel um, is because they were first recipients of God's grace. They were first recipients of unmerited favor to them in the redeeming and rescuing and resur- resurrecting work of Jesus. And because they had received what God gave them in and through Jesus, they were partakers with him, verse 7, of grace. They were partakers with me of grace. If we are, if we are partakers, if we are partners in the gospel, this is to have true fellowship. This is, this is not casseroles and small talk. This is not game nights. To say that we have fellowship together in the scriptures is to have fellowship in the gospel. Partnership in grace. And this is the reality that God through Jesus has pulled us out of our self-centered pit of death, made us to, to face the ugly depths of our guilt and helplessness and drawn us graciously to trust Jesus who took our guilt, who took our ugly, who took our selfishness and our helplessness on himself. God's graciousness to us in Jesus inflames our hearts and ignites our love, not only for the one who rescued us, but for the others for whom God is also rescuing. And for those whom we pray God will yet one day rescue. So let me say this. To the degree that you and I 
fail or fall short in loving in this way, in loving those whom Jesus has called lovely, the ones who annoy us, the ones who sing off key, the ones whose kids distract us, the ones whose conversations grate on us, the ones whose driving infuriates us and whose company tries us to the degree that there are those people in our lives that we find it impossible to love is the degree to which we have not fully plumbed the depths of God's unrelenting love towards us in Christ Jesus. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were the enemies of God and Jesus gave his life and called us friend. Called us family. While we were his enemies, he bled for us. While we were hostile in our very nature to the call of God, Jesus gave up his life for us. While we were harboring bitterness and resentment, petty annoyance and deep animus, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Dear friends, to love our neighbors as ourselves, we cannot do it with our puny heart. We need a new heart. We need a new strength. We need a new spirit within us. We need a new life, a new birth. We need what can only be found in and through Christ Jesus. I'm not telling you to try and go out of here and knuckle down and love people better. I'm saying receive how God has loved you and let that love change you from the inside out. You don't need better love. You need Christ's love. You can't get over yourself. You have to have yourself conquered. You can't love in this way until you've received the way that you have been loved. In order to love with the affection of Christ Jesus, we need to first experience it in a saving way and then experience it daily in a sustaining way. So what's your hope? You and I both know that we do not love in this way. We don't love this way. We don't act this way. We don't look this way. But here's the thing. If you desire, if you desire to love in this way, here's the thing. Look at verse six. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. You must never give up on the transforming, heart-changing, sin-crushing, soul-restoring grace of God in Christ Jesus simply because, friends, he has not given up on you. (laughs) So don't hear this and shrug and cast it aside and say, boy, I need to send this sermon to my fill-in-the-blank. You're here. I'm here. This is for us. This is God's word for us. The good news is for the most hardened and calloused in this room, if God can change Saul and give him this type of love, God can change you because God brings dead things to life and puts broken things back together. Beloved, today you don't stand accused. If you're in Christ, you stand acquitted. 
you can receive the love that you have been given in Jesus and go and love as you have been loved. You can join together with this unlikely band of co-laborers that we have been brought together in partnership with, with a common unity and common purpose and common mission, that we can be a countercultural community, not living alone together, but together in the fellowship of the gospel. Because, dear friends, alone together is not a way to live. It is in and through and because of the redeeming work of Jesus that we have life. And that's what the, that is what our neighbors need more than anything. They need Jesus. And we need to see that we have our, our purpose and our identity in him.